There is something that really makes us upset. What is it? It is to see people treated harshly who do not deserve it. When we see people treated in a bad way, we see them treated harshly, and we see that they did not deserve it. It was nothing that they had done to deserve that type of a treatment. When we see this type of situation, it really gets us upset. When the innocent suffer, our antenna go up. Sometimes we feel that we are the innocent who are suffering unjustly. Sometimes we are done wrong by people doing evil to us. But when you look at the big picture, we are all fallen human beings, ultimately suffering in a post-Genesis 3 world caused by sin in which we have contributed to the sin. There is one, however, who has suffered unjustly. There is one who has suffered who did not deserve it in the least. And his name is Jesus. Yeah, he did not deserve it, but he came into this world and he suffered. In his letter, Peter has been encouraging first century Christians and us 21st century Christians on how to deal with suffering how to deal with it. And we've been learning how to deal with suffering and how to deal with those situations when we've been done wrong. We've learned how to center our hearts in Christ and, and to, to put our focus upon him. Learned how to have the right perspective as we're going through things and going through suffering and being treated in perhaps an evil way. Here in this last section of chapter 3 of Peter, Peter offers the most powerful perspective that there is in dealing with suffering. The most powerful perspective Peter offers is the perspective of the suffering Christ. The perspective of the suffering Christ in helping us to deal with the suffering that we are going through. Jesus suffered for us, and through that suffering, he made it possible that we could be united with our Heavenly Father. And through it, it gives us the perfect example in dealing with suffering for good, for the cause of Christ. Tonight we take a look at this final section in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I've titled the Bible study tonight, His Pain, Our Gain. Jesus suffered the pain of suffering for us, and through it we receive the ultimate gain. So let's look at the ultimate, the, the example of of Jesus' suffering, and learn of what he really did for us and what he modeled for us. His pain, our gain. Christ is our example in suffering. Let's pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 3. Pick it up, verse 18. It says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. 
Christ is our example. Christ is our example in every situation. He is the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of the faith. And in that, there's nothing that is left out. There is at no point where we go, oh, well, you know, in this area, Jesus really isn't, doesn't provide an example for us. No, Jesus provides the perfect example for us. And so the final key in dealing with suffering in our lives is to look to Jesus, to look at the example of Christ. Why is that? Christ is our example in suffering. He's our example in suffering. Jesus is our example in everything, and that includes suffering. Peter says here, Christ also suffered for our sins. Jesus underwent the suffering of the cross and bearing the burden of our sins. Peter tells us that the just suffered for the unjust. You know, if there's, if, you know, there's a lot of things that get a lot of people riled up today. There's a, there's a lot of things that get under people's skin and really bother people. And, 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 and really what sh- something that should speak to us, something that should really uh, get, get us going in, in the faith in Christ is, is exactly what Jesus did for us. The just, the just person Christ suffering for us, the unjust. I mean, you know, it it puts us in a situation where we're forever grateful, we're forever thankful. Why? Because we were unjust and he was just. And the just suffered for the unjust. And for that reason, we can always and eternally give God thanks, give Christ thanks for what he's done. According to our ideas, if there is anyone that ought to have been spared the cup of suffering, it was Christ. But he also suffered... He suffered on the account of sins and for atoning for all the sins of the world. All the sins of the world. Every sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Just contemplated all the sins of the world. I mean, we we sang a song, I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. And we sit there and sing a song like that and we try to contemplate all of our own sin. We try to contemplate all of our own sin and then to sit there and think about contemplating all the sin of all the world and Jesus went to the cross for that, the just, crucified for the unjust, the just, suffering for the the, the unjust. Now, because of the nature of what Christ did on the cross in taking upon the sins of the world, it was a completely unique suffering. It was a completely unique suffering that Christ endured for us. Spurgeon, the great English preacher, had this to say about the uniqueness of Jesus' suffering. Spurgeon recalled the heroic suffering of one godly man. He said, I remember reading in Fox's book of martyrs the story of a man of God who was bound to a stake to die for Christ. There he was, calm and quiet, till his legs had been burned away. And the bystanders looked to see his helpless body drop from the chains to what was black as coal. And not a feature could be discerned, but one who was near was greatly surprised to see the poor black carcass open its mouth, and two words came out of it. What do you suppose they were? Sweet Jesus. And then the martyr fell over the chains, and at last life was gone. That saint had the the sweet presence of Jesus to help him through his horrible suffering. 
But Jesus did not have the sweet presence of his father to help him on the cross. You say, what? What do you mean? Instead, Jesus, the son, felt the separation from the father in that moment, taking, taking on all the sins of the world. In that sense, the suffering of Jesus on the cross was worse than any, other, any ever suffered by a martyr. Perhaps not worse in physical pain, but certainly in the spiritual suffering and total experience. Spurgeon added this. It's almost as if the apostle said, none of you have suffered when compared with him. Or at least he was the arch sufferer. The prince of sufferers, the emperor of the realm of agony, Lord paramount in sorrow. You know a little bit about grief, but you do not know much. The hem of grief's garment is all you ever touch, but Christ wore it as his daily robe. We do but sip of the cup. He drank it to its bitterest dregs. We feel just a little of the warmth of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, but he felt he dwelt in the very midst of the fire. The suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf. Now, Jesus didn't go through suffering just to go through suffering. He didn't have that moment of crying out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For no good reason. The purpose of the cross had a great purpose. The purpose of Christ's suffering. He suffered that he might bring us to God. This is what Peter says. Look at it again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. So he suffered to bring us to God. Jesus suffered to bring you to the Lord, to bring you to the Father, to bring you to the God of all creation. Amen? And so in that sense, it was his pain, our gain. That chasm, as we sang already in the song, that chasm that was far too wide, we can now cross on the basis by which Jesus has created that bridge between the chasm for us. He has suffered. The penalty of our sin was laid upon him. Amen? And so his pain was for our gain. His pain was for our gain. And so when you think about suffering, I think it's something to think about. I think when you think about maybe the suffering that you endure, the, the suffering that you may in the future endure, I think it's a good idea to look at this, to look at what Peter is saying here. For Christ also suffered. The just for the unjust. Christ suffered for us to bring us to God. Amen? How was it that Jesus made it possible for us to be brought to the Father? How did how was this happen? How did this happen? It was through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son. This is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. The gospel is what saves. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel and putting our faith and trust, putting our full hope and trust in Jesus Christ. This is what saves us. But the question I think needs to be asked. I think people need to understand. We need to be under, understand what the gospel is. We talked about last week being able to articulate why you are a Christian. 
Why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in the Bible? Why do you believe the Bible to be true? Why do you put your faith and hope in this book? Those are, those are great questions. And I think part of, of being a, a maturing believer is actually being able to know exactly what the gospel is. And, and in one sense, the gospel is, I mean, this, this book is the gospel. I mean, this is the good news of God. This is the good news of Christ from cover to cover. People talk about the first gospel in Genesis 3, 15. The gospel being disseminated by God all the way through the scriptures. But there is an encapsulated form of the gospel that is indeed the true gospel. And it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is specifically what Paul outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll have it up on the screen for you, beginning at verse 3, and it'll be verses 3 and 4. Paul said this, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Paul goes on, but here in these two verses, really, you have the, the essence of what the gospel is, that Jesus died, that he suffered on the cross, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures have foretold. And so this is the gospel, and it talks about the suffering Christ, his pain was for our gain. It brought us to God. And so really, Christian, as you're walking with the Lord and you go through suffering, I think at the very worst of it, you can think in your mind, you know what? Jesus went through the worst suffering that there ever was on my behalf. So he was killed. He was crucified, buried, resurrected, taking all the sins upon him, all the sins of the world, that they might be forgiven, that they might be atoned for, to whosoever would come and receive the forgiveness of Christ. And wow, what an awesome thought that we have to hang on to through whatever suffering that we may go. Now, I, for one, I read that story that Spurgeon brings up from Fox's Book of Martyrs. I pray that I never have suffering like on that, on that level. What Chained to a stake, burned at the stake. I pray suffering on that scale never come to me or my family or anyone that I know, or anyone for that matter. But whatever may come my way, I can hold on to the fact that Christ suffered for me and he underwent an unbelievable process so that we could be brought to God, so that we could be brought to God, amen? So Christ is our example in suffering. He's our example in suffering. But he's also, Christ is also our example in preaching. He's also our example in preaching. Let's go back to the text there and pick it up in verse 19. He says, by who, well, let's pick it up in the last part of 18. Paul says, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, to which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Let's stop right there. Christ is our example in preaching. Sometimes our preaching of the gospel, our proclaiming of the gospel, is met by resistance. 
Have you ever tried to share the gospel message and, been, and that been met with resistance? Maybe you've tried to share on Facebook and you get all kinds of, you know, thumbs down or whatever on the post. Maybe you're sitting around the Thanksgiving dinner table with, you know, the family that you only see once a year and you've just got to get some gospel in there and it's met with some type of uh, resistance. Maybe you've been more regular in your presentations of the gospel and you've had that resistance to the preaching of the gospel message. Sometimes that resistance brings about suffering. People have gone out to preach the gospel and they've actually, it actually has brought actual suffering um, beyond the, a door slammed in the face. I mean, that, that's, that's maybe on the mild side of of uh, resistance to the gospel. I mean, there are those that have gone out and, and suffered greatly uh, in their presentation of the gospel. Jesus, even through the process of his suffering of the cross and death and resurrection, in his, in his resurrection by the Spirit of God, amen, that he was raised by the Spirit, by the, the, the Father raised him, the Spirit raised him, the Spirit of God, raised him from the dead. And Peter tells us that he preached, and by this spirit he preached, verse 19, also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. So Peter tells us that Jesus preached to spirits in prison. Okay. This is a verse of Scripture that has had many interpretations down through the years. This is one of those passages that uh, if you weren't teaching verse by verse, you might just hang out on the, hey, Jesus suffered and brought us to God. Isn't this great? Yeah, we're going to, you know, we're not going to pay, pay no attention to the man behind the green curtain. Pay no attention to the, the verses that have multiple interpretations that we, you know, still struggling with and commentators still arguing over. But we're going to tackle it head on tonight. Amen? Amen? An area of Scripture that has had many interpretations down through the years. Here are some of the questions that arise in, when you look at this particular passage. Who were the spirits that Jesus preached to? Where was the prison? And when did this happen? These are all great questions concerning these verses. And so I'm going to take a look at a, a couple different uh, interpretations. A couple of them, I'm going to I'm briefly mention them and discard them to the, to, the, to the heap of history. Clement of Alexandria, about 200 AD, taught that Christ, that these verses talked of Christ being sent into Hades by the Spirit, to proclaim the message of salvation to the souls of sinners who were imprisoned there since the flood of Noah, since Noah's flood. And so this interpretation dating back to about 200 AD, Clement of Alexandria, that, that, that Jesus was sent into Hades to, to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel to souls there in, in, in the prison of, of Hades. And... Uh, and one of the reasons why this view is rejected, has been rejected, it's still accepted by some parts of the church, by the way. But I would reject it uh, along with my colleagues in the ministry because it is a, it's, a, it's a view that is inconsistent with Scripture in that uh, 
there would be no reason to preach in any type of evangelistic way to the souls in Hades, the souls of those who did not repent when the gospel, when salvation was preached to them through Noah and in the time of Noah. Okay. And the idea is this, that, you know, and I think, you, you know, we're not going to make a defense of this tonight, but you, you, you understand that there, there is a finality to death when we cross through that passageway, that door, that death, if you will, that, 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 that threshold, there is a, a finality of, of the choices that have been made. And, um, and, and, and I don't think, you know, people have tried to make a case of souls being saved out of, out of Hades and souls being saved out of, out of hell and, and whatever. And, and, um, and, and there's no conversion uh, process after death. It, it, there's a finality to it. And so we have to understand that. Now, Augustine came along about a couple hundred years later in and about 400 A.D., and he said, this was his interpretation, that the pre-existent Christ proclaimed salvation through Noah to the people who lived before the flood. And this, this one is dismissed not because of a disagreement with the spirit of Christ or the message of the gospel or the message of salvation, at least, to what was available to the people at Noah's time were weren't preached through Noah. Certainly Noah did preach and proclaim the, the, the coming judgment upon the earth. But the interpretation is inconsistent with the context of, of Peter's argument here in 1 Peter 3 in the context of verse 18 and, and the passages that we've already dealt with in terms of the suffering of Christ and the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and, and, and that. So it leaves a couple more possibilities. Before we look at these two possibilities, we want to look at a couple of the words here. We want to look at preach and we want to look at prison. Here the word preach, the word preach here in verse 19, the, one of the reasons why um, sometimes interpretations are skewed in a particular direction is because... Uh, of when we look at words and we kind of take maybe a surface understanding of it. And so when we think of preaching, when we think of, it, of us, if we were going to preach, we would go evangelistically to preach, to, to, to convert. We, we wouldn't go to just say, hey, look at us, we're preaching, <laughs> you know? We would go with, a, with a preaching in an evangelistic sense. But there is in, in, in this word an option of interpretation. The, the word is caruso in the Greek. And, and it can be that it is simply an announcement, a, a proclamation, a, 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 a making of something known to someone. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily... Uh, does it have to necessarily include a preaching with an evangelistic uh, outcome in mind? And so there is, a, there is an idea of a proclamation in that sense. It can, can include simply declaring something. Uh, in this sense, the victory of the cross. Jesus would be declaring the victory of the cross. 
And then, and then we have the term, I'm sorry, not prison. The, I want to look at the term uh, spirits. The, the term spirits here is, is a term that usually is applied to supernatural beings, but it also is used at least once to refer to human spirits. So you have spirits, he proclaimed to spirits. They could be supernatural spirits or they could be human spirits. And so with the understanding of these two words, we can unpack the other two possibilities. The spirits in prison are the spirits of the men and women who disobeyed God and did not heed the preaching of Noah. And these spirits are now in prison awaiting the final judgment of God at the end of the age. They had rebelled against the message of God. During the years the ark was being built, God declared that he would not tolerate people's wickedness forever. And he commanded Noah. He found Noah to be perfect in his generations. Actually, the word there is, is perfect in his, in, in, in his flesh, having not been corrupted by the goings-on that we read of in Genesis chapter 6. And, and so he was untainted and he became uh, a, a, a proclaimer of the judgment that was coming. And he was instructed to build the ark. He was instructed to build the ark. And so he proclaimed the, the, the gospel of being saved from the coming judgment, the water, the deluge that was coming. For 120 years, he built the ark. Peter refers to this as this period of time when the divine long-suffering waited, right? I, I, I can remember this passage, the, the divine forbearance, right? The divine forbearance, the divine long-suffering waited. Waited what? when? Waited when, when Noah, for 120 years, built the ark. I mean, can you, can you imagine building the ark for 120 years? I mean, I, for one, would have wanted to get it you know, hey, let's, guys, let's build this as quick as we can. We're not going to go through this rebuke and ridicule for 120 years, and then we'll get it done, and we'll just get God to get on with the, you know, with the rain showers, and, and let's get this thing, let's get it moving here. No, but the divine long-suffering, the divine forbearance was, was intact there, and, and there was this period of time that that gospel, the message of, of trusting in God and, and getting on the ark was the message. And the, and, and the people of that time rejected it. Rejected it. I mean, you think of the population at the time, and eight people got on the ark. You think of Noah, his wife, his three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three wives. Eight souls saved on the ark. You mean to tell me no one else got on the ark? There wasn't like a straggler. There wasn't like a guy that came in from the neighborhood like, hey, yeah, I think I want to get on. No, no one got on. This is encouragement. This, this would be a good text to preach at a preacher's conference. <laughs> Encourage the, the preachers, you know. When you preach for all that time and nobody comes forward, hey, you're in good company. Noah preached for 120 years and he had his three boys, their wives and his wife on the boat. That's it. And, and so you have this group that did not respond to the gospel. You said, well, they didn't know about Christ. They didn't know about the cross. The people in the Old Testament 
responded to the gospel message that was presented to them. That was the gospel to them. If you read the, book, if you read the argument in the book of Hebrews, and, and, and you read the hall of faith, and, you, and, 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 the, and the writer makes the argument, by faith, so-and-so did this, and it was counted to him as righteousness. When the word of the Lord came to these people, that was the word that they had to respond, and it was counted to them as righteousness for responding to the word of God that was available at that particular time. And so that was the word that they had. The word that they had was, the, the, the deluge is coming. I'm building an ark. Get on the ark. And they did not do it. And so you have uh, this, this explanation. And the entire human race, except Noah, was, was wiped out from the face of the earth. The problem then remains as to when Christ preached to these spirits. Peter's explanation of the resurrection of Christ by the Spirit brings to mind the suggestion that the pre-incarnate Christ was ministering through Noah by means of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ preached through Noah to the ungodly humans who at the time of Peter's writing were spirits in prison awaiting final judgment. This interpretation seems to fit the theme of the section, keeping a good conscience in unjust persecution, Noah is presented as an example of one who committed himself to a course of action for the sake of clear conscience before God, though it meant enduring harsh ridicule. So there's, there's, that, there's that angle that there was a preaching of that, that witness. And then there's another one, another angle and it is the imprisoned fallen angels, the spirits of the imprisoned fallen angels. Frederick uh, Spita, however, in the last decade of the 19th century, applied Christ's proclamation to the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. These, these angels are also referenced by Peter in his second epistle in chapter uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, and also mentioned by Jude 6. And um, vaguely, if, if people are paying attention to Paul's writings, are also mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 when he's dealing with the order of worship. The angels who sinned, who did not keep their proper abode and came to the earth and were involved in mischievous things to say it lightly Jude 6 Jude 6 and 7 Jude deals with these the the angels that went after strange flesh they went after a flesh that was not of of, of their own and so this actually it's hard to really understand the context of Noah's flood without understanding the context of uh, an angel view interpretation of, of Genesis 6. Because it was in the days of Noah that all flesh was corrupted. Yes, man was sinful and yes, man was, had been corrupted by sin, but that's not all that is said in Genesis about the, the, to the extent of the corruption that was, that, 
that was in all flesh, not just even in mankind, but also in the, in the animal kingdom as well. So there was a, there was a corruption of all flesh. And so the, the, the deluge, the flood, came not only to deal with the corruption of sin in the earth, in, in humankind, but to deal very specifically with the corruption that had come into the world as it were, as it pertained to the angels who kept not their proper abode, their proper place. And so, where this all goes to is that Christ preached. Now, later in Peter, you're going to have to stick around through the, the whole series until we get to Second Peter, where Peter talks about the angels who were in chains in Tartarus. Okay, so these are the angels that he's talking about. They're in a place called Tartarus. It's an actual place. They're in chains. I don't know what kind of chains they are, but they're, in, they're chained. God's going to send an angel down in the end times, and they're going to chain up the devil. We don't know what kind of chain that's going to be, but nevertheless, there's going to be a chain, and the devil's going to be chained up. Amen? So we don't know what kind of chain that's going to be, and we don't know what kind of chains these angels are chained up with, but they're in chains in a place called Tartarus, a prison for these angels that did not keep their proper abode. What is actually happening here is the angels who, did, who were not under the proper authority of Yahweh and, and the Godhead and the Son and brought corruption into the world and did their whole thing and God stepped in and put them in prison, now through the cross... Jesus is now going to the prison and he's proclaiming to them. He's announcing the victory of the cross. And when we get to the last verse, you're going to see where Peter ties it all together, where, where all things have been brought under his authority by virtue of what? By virtue of the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, that he's brought all the principalities and powers under the authority. And so when he goes into the prison of Tartarus and announcing to those principalities that would not come under the jurisdiction and the, and the authority of the Son, now, through what Christ did in redeeming mankind and going to the cross, the burial and the resurrection, being made alive by the Spirit, now is proclaiming and announcing the victory of the cross. Amen? And so it's a powerful thing. Now, we've said all that to say this, and we got to just keep moving, and we'll bring it to a close. Are you still with me? Did I lose anybody? Okay. Raise your hand if I lost you. No one will admit it. Okay. But now Peter continues on this theme talking about what happened in Noah's time. The flood. God brought a flood that wiped out the corruption that had fallen, that had come to all flesh, and there were eight souls saved through the flood. So Peter drew a picture with his words here, even as Noah's salvation from the judgment of God was connected with water, the eight souls got into the boat and went through the water, as it were, the deluge, and they were saved, as it were, through the water. Peter sees the typology, the pattern that is there in Scripture and connects that to water baptism. And so Peter was uh, drawing the line of the flood 
being a type of water baptism and talking about the faith that we have in Christ and coming to water baptism as being that which the flood pictured. Now, the flood was a literal event, but Peter is drawing the typology and connecting water baptism back to what happened in the souls being saved through the water, through the flood. And so we are saved through the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And water baptism becomes a picture for us of coming through this water and this cleansing of a pure conscience. How do you know? Well, Peter says in the next verse, he says, now not of cleansing of the defiled flesh, but of a clear conscience before God. And so what salvation actually does and water baptism becomes a symbol of is a symbol of having been cleansed by the work of Christ that he accomplished on the cross and now having a clear conscience before God. And so there are parts of the church that have gotten into, you know, all kinds of, you know, they, they've got water and they do all kinds of stuff with water and it's a cleansing and all that. And, and, and that's fine and whatever. But what, what Peter's saying is that the water of water baptism doesn't cleanse the, the defilement of the flesh, but it speaks of the picture of the Christian having our conscience cleared before God. Amen. And that's ultimately... You want to talk about his pain, our gain. Ultimately, that's what's been given to us. We've been brought to God, and our conscience has been cleared, and we have a clear conscience before God. And so the ultimate has happened for us, those that believe. Peter is very careful to point out that this isn't the actual water of baptism saving us or cleansing our, our, our dirty, you know, Sometimes people are like, you know, I want to get baptized. I need a, I need a bath or something. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what it is about. It's about what really saves us. It's the power of the cross of Christ and us having a conscience, a clear conscience towards God. Now, Peter concludes, and this draws the complete context of the passage together. Peter concludes with the completeness of Christ's victory. Let's pick it up, chapter, uh, verse 22. He says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Okay? So do, do, do you see what Peter's saying now? What, so Jesus suffered for us, the unjust, the just for the unjust. He did it to bring us to God. He, was, he died, was buried, was resurrected. He went and preached. He proclaimed the spirits in prison. He proclaimed the victory of the cross to those who, who did not, were not submitted under the authority of cross, the, the ultimate authority of Christ. But through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he is exalted to the highest place and having brought all things under his power. You see, this is what actually is, is happening. Besides the fact that we're all being won into the kingdom of God and an inheritance of, from the nations for, for God, he's bringing all things under his feet. Amen? And this is what Peter is telling us. The ultimate and complete victory of Christ. 
Jesus, after the resurrection, is exalted to the highest place. He's exalted above all principalities and powers, of the angels and the authorities. So Jesus, though he suffered for doing good, he had the ultimate triumph. The, 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 the example here actually proves true what Peter had said earlier in 1 Peter 3, 9, that when we suffer for doing good, we will inherit blessing, that it is blessed. Amen? There is a blessing. And so his pain was for our gain. And Christian, no matter what you're going through, what you ever will go through, we can always come back to the fact that he went through the ultimate suffering for us. And that although our suffering might seem intense for us at times, it's a light and momentary suffering compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has in store for, for you and I. Amen? So his pain was for our gain. 